Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. Today, I get to speak with Dr. Caleb Simmons from the University of Arizona on a fantastic new 2020 OUP publication, Devotional Sovereignty. Hello, Caleb. Hi, Raj. How's it going? Um, It's going pretty well. Um, uh, I think we were chatting earlier that this isn't your first time on the program. You You were on in 2018 in your role as co-editor of a collected volume, um, uh, The Nine Nights of the Goddess. But now we get to talk about your monograph. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And um, our paths have crossed before, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I contributed to that project, um, The Nine Nights Project, but I think we actually met at the AAR presentation of that project, uh, probably close to 10 years ago by now. Um, and what's interesting is <laughs> I think the name in the AR program for that project was the goddess and the king. <laughs> and exactly. <laughs> that name is, is also, I believe, the name of your dissertation That's and correct. the name of the book <laughs> that I wrote for my dissertation, my first book. And so uh, we can empirically demonstrate <laughs> that our research <laughs> <laughs> our, our research is quite related, and and because of that, um, I'm going to err on on playing the part of the the naive, um, uh, hopefully not blithering idiot, but the na- the naive interlocutor, so as to refamiliarize myself with some of the material you talk about. How does that sound? That sounds great. Great. So maybe just um, situate the listeners in terms of where and when, so geographically, historically, locate us for the purposes of your research. Okay, great. Yeah, so the the book, um, Devotional Sovereignty, um, it's focusing on the the bridge between early modernity and modernity. So what I've called in the book, um, late early modern, early colonial um, and so, of course, these dates are, are movable, uh, but the firm dates, because I focus on two people, Tipu Sultan and Christian Raja Woodier III, uh, really I'm covering between 1782 and 1868, with 1782 being the year that Tipu Sultan uh, was installed as the Sultan of, of the Mysore Sultanate in 1868, when his successor, Christian Raja Woodier III, uh, dies. But of course, this is um, some looking at it as as a bridge period. I'm also interested in um, how they're using uh, sources from before this period on into the pre-modernity, um, and then rethinking them, re-envisioning them in ways that really shape the rest of the colonial period and on into even modern democratic India by formulating uh, what it means to be sovereign in India through this through this period. And so that's the, the time frame. And I'm specifically looking at the, the former kingdom of Mysore, which is situated in southern India 
just to the south of the the Deccan Plateau. So that's uh, below the it's just south of where all the the large medieval um, empires of of Karnataka were. So you have like the Bahmanis, the Adil Shahis, the Jayanagara. So they're just just to the south of that, situated between the the Western Ghats uh, and the the Tamil speaking zones. So this gives a an interesting geographical space because they're close in proximity to these large empires that arise in Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, uh, yet they remi- remain somewhat isolated because they're inland, uh, they're protected um, on their, their west by the Ghats. And so it actually, a lot of the, a lot of aspects of the colonial encounter uh, are pretty slow getting into Mysore uh, because they're they're landlocked, they had a reputation for being um, fierce warriors and often called barbarians within European sources. So a lot of the the processes of colonialization uh, don't really come into into the area until much later, which gives us a actually an abundance of resources to see how the negotiations of kingship of sovereignty, how all of these take place. Um, in this period of Tipu Sultan and Krishna Raja Woodier III to formulate what it means to be an Indian king uh, during a period of European and, and British um, military um, battles on into the losses that are incurred and eventually into being a, a British subject. So it provides us a, an interesting insight to some of the things that happen in other places uh, throughout India now with just a um, larger archive to see how these things unfolded. So we have a, a great uh, sense of the where and the when. Um, tell us about the what and the how. What are you after? What are you asking? What is your research hoping to demonstrate or elucidate? And also, um, how do you go about doing so? What types of sources do you rely upon? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So, um, since you brought up our, our shared titles, uh, it, it, you know, this project actually started with my my dissertation, "The Goddess and the King," uh, because I I guess you would notice from being on this channel on uh, New Books Network is that uh, my my focus is Hindu studies, uh, so I was started off actually looking at the goddess Chamundeshwari in Mysore. And as I as I learned more about her and more about the history, uh, I started to shift to think more about the relationship between the goddess and the king in Mysore. So in my dissertation, I was interested in reading genealogies about um, the goddess in which about the Woodier kings in which they talk about the goddess and their goddess patronage. And um, from this, I started getting more interested in what the function of these genealogies were. And from a dissertation that started really in the, the 14th century and went all the way through the uh, through 1868 also, uh, I started thinking more deeply about the, the function that they played. And then I had a, an extremely formative conversation with the, the Maharaja of Mysore only a few weeks before he, he passed away in 2013. And this led from the changes from a, a broad dissertation about the goddess and the king to something more focused on sovereignty, uh, because the conversation um, didn't exactly go the way I thought, which is actually the way I decided to start this um, uh, this book. Uh, is I, I went and met with them and was very excited to you know, you know demonstrate my my knowledge of um, kind of the literature, especially that produced within uh, the 
the court of, of Mysore. And not only was he not impressed, uh, but actually started to send me to sources and said, um, uh, you know, it was a really formative comment. And he said, if you really want to know about Indian kingship, uh, you should go read James Todd's uh, book about Rajasthan, because uh, Rajasthans are the are, um, Rajputs are the, the true kings of, of Mysore. And if you want to know about paintings, don't look at the, this local stuff here. Look at um, uh, Roger Ravi Varma, the, the famous painter of sort of a neoclassical style. And I was shocked. Um, and I sort of walked away from that deflated thinking, you know, why doesn't he like his whole kingdom? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what? I just I completely missed the point. Uh, the point wasn't uh, that he didn't like his court didn't believe in uh, the productions from it because actually we had a, a extremely fruitful conversation. He was very well informed and about the history of the literature from the court, and the different texts. Uh, but what had happened was he had consciously uh, thought about identity and was framing himself uh, in a different way than the way I wanted to frame the the Woodier Kings. And so he was carefully curating different sources, um, different histories that he had to. Um, articulate his identity um, because part of the, the identity of, of the Woodier Kings now is claiming this ancestry to the to the Rajputs and to North India. Um, and then also sort of demonstrating that uh, the Mysore King himself um, included and probably foremost uh, was sort of a international uh, cosmopolitan king. So what he, what he wasn't disparaging the the histories of his court, but he was just shaping where, uh, what his kingship was, articulating his own identity in a different way than what I wanted him to. And as part of this process, I'd asked him for access to his library uh, of, of these texts, and I was denied. And what I realized, again, upon reflection was that this actually was him uh, demarcating his sovereignty, that he had the ability to grant or deny my request. And so he exercised his uh, sovereignty to, to say, no, you could not have access to them. You have to go find them, them elsewhere. So as I reflected more and more on, on this conversation, um, I thought about the material from Tipu Sultan and Krishna Raja Woodier III and thought, you know, this is a similar process that it was taking place during their kingship. Uh, that they, the boundaries, the domains of their sovereignty uh, were in flux and they were being contested. And so the articulations coming from the court, whether they're uh, literature, genealogies, material culture, paintings, all those work to construct a, a royal identity. Uh, and through these, they were also helping to demarcate the boundaries of their sovereignty, either by talking about conquest, as Tifu Sultan did in early on within his um, uh, courtly literature or the courtly literature of his courtiers, uh, or moving forward in time to Krishna Raja's Woodier III, by the end of his reign, he's really demarcating his sovereignty over Hindu identity and patronage of Hindu temples. So um, it's a, that's really how the, the entire project developed to get me to my new question of, you know, what does it mean to be a sovereign, particularly an Indian king, uh, in a period to where you don't have military or administrative control? Uh, do you stop being king or do you simply become king in a new way? Uh, and so this is what I saw um, with um, the late Maharaja, but also within Tipu Sultan and Krishna Raja Woodier III. 
in terms of period pieces, um, which question what it means to be sovereign, um, I quipped earlier um, before we began that that Netflix needs to make um, <laughs> an Indian Crown <laughs> series set uh, set in this line of Kings and Mysore. Um, I, my bias, uh, notwithstanding, I find um, both the research and the trajectory and the um, the, the 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 fact that you <laughs> that your quest to understand kingship, uh, Indian kingship, was literally directly impacted by a living Indian king. I find that endlessly fascinating. Um, uh, fortuitous, faded, serendipitous, certainly, um, uh, certainly. Uh, atypical <laughs> to say the least <laughs> especially for a textualist like yourself um someone uh someone looking to archives um so it, what was he signaling to you what was he um the answer you got uh, from the maharaja like what do you think his motivation was to um to direct you to those sources, especially as pertains to, to your research project. Yeah, I, this actually gets me to part of the, the big question about the historical material that I look at, too, is, you know, I um, when I read a lot of things, particularly from the, the 80s, 90s, and some into the earlier 2000s, a lot of people talk about, you know, the legitimization of, of kingship uh, and talk about it as sort of a what strikes me is like almost they're, you know, sitting in their throne rooms with their courtiers conniving about how to do this. And I think it's a, a more organic process uh, that happens as people get together and and think about who they are or who their kings are um, and what they want to present to the world. I mean, we're always involved in uh, you know, self-fashioning now, trying to, to reflect on ourselves. And so I don't necessarily think that the Maharaja was trying to um, steer me one way or the other, but I think that his own personal identity was so wrapped into these ideas of Rajput identity, uh, also forward into thinking about himself as um, an international cosmopolitan man, that when I presented him what I thought kingship was and ought to be uh, for Mysore, uh, it was only natural for him to articulate his understanding of his royal identity. And so I think that this is also what's happening in these uh, late, early, modern, early colonial courts is that, you know, they're they're searching for where their boundaries are. Uh, they're not necessarily conniving what they are, if that makes any sense, that they're actually like they're finding their spots of sovereignty and then enacting and articulating the new identity that comes along with this. So it's an organic process that comes about. And we really see this in, in Tipu Sultan. The Tipu Sultan um, is a, a striking historical figure because um, really, if you you know go on Twitter, go on Instagram and, and search hashtag Tipu Sultan, you get a wide range of, of responses. Oftentimes, the, the most numerous of the posts will be coming from India uh, which we'll call him, you know, bloodthirsty, uh, Muslim terrorist, a zealot. Uh, and then you also will find maybe what you might call a minority opinion in India, which is that he was a, a great freedom fighter. 
And then for Pakistan, he remains a, a great freedom fighter for uh, for all of India. So he has this, you know, personality and this history that still evokes a lot of interest from people. Uh, but what we find over his actual career is that he is by far um, not some sort of monolithic character. Uh, he starts off as you know, king in, in 1782, uh, very much positioning himself as his father, who, who had been um, hired as a, a mercenary by the Woodiers and eventually became appointed as the king of the of the Kelly region up in Bednuru. Positions himself as both the king of Bednuru and the sultan of, of Mysore, framing himself as um, divinely elected to become king because, um, one, he was uh, the most militarily capable. Uh, in fact, shortly after his uh, installation, he's able to defeat the British, which, uh, from my understanding, he is the the, the first uh, of any Indian king to be completely able to to beat the British and force them into a treaty in which they have to to retreat and give up land. Um, and so, at this point, it's all about like his military identity that he's the best. It's all based on divine election through proof of of conquest. Uh, but also framing himself as a, a proper genealogy of a king coming from the Arabian Peninsula, uh, perhaps even a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, um, depends on which genealogy you're reading. Uh, but of course, this is when he was the, the victor. After he loses the third uh, Anglo-Mysore War in 1792, and then moving forward as his position is weakening, uh, he shifts away from this and starts focusing more on uh, divine election through um, the grace of God, through the um, authority of gurus and of, of Sufi saints. Uh, so you see that he's not monolithic in many ways, but particularly not in the way that he's articulating his own sovereign identity through the ways that um, he was divinely elected to become that king. So um, just to alert the reader, uh, the reader, the listener, uh, these two rulers uh, are, are adjacent. Uh, the Sultan reigned from 1782 to 1799, I believe, and then it was immediately followed by uh, Krishnaraja Wadir III. Um, so they make for a fascinating juxtaposition. And the book is actually organized such that um, the first three chapters are dedicated to the Sultan and the following four are dedicated um, to Krishnaraja Warrior. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, so this is, I, I, I mean, thanks to one of my readers, the, the infamous uh, reader number two, who actually came up with a lot of brilliant suggestions previously. If you, if, when, when looking at the book, uh, you might notice that the two parts are sort of parallel, that the first chapter on Tipu Sultan uh, looks at genealogy. The first one for Krishnaraja Warrior also on genealogy. The second about their displays of devotion uh, to certain sites that were important in pre-modernity uh, so in both of them. And the third is about uh, sort of uh, material and visual cultures and how these articulate um, sovereignty. So these used to be actually just huge, massive chapters that was on like genealogy, one on like patronage and then one on visual art. So the, you know, the same length of a book just with three massive chapters. Uh, so luckily I was able to split them into two parts, which uh, works much better 
for the reader. So um, I encourage everyone not to be so down on, on reader number twos because they have some good suggestions. Um, but yeah, so they follow this, this same sort of trajectory. And this is what kind of makes them so interesting to look at together is that you know, in their popular characterization and sadly in their historical characterization also, uh, people view them as polar opposites. One strong military, whichever you know you, way you want to take that, uh, and then you know sort of puppet monarch. And I don't believe either of them are just those things. In fact, Krishna Raja Woodier, uh, I see him far from being a puppet, but actually someone who strongly resists um, British rule. So as you said, Tipu Sultan dies in 1799. He's killed at the Battle of Shirang Patna. Uh, by the by, the British, and this caused a, a moment of turmoil within um, the the colonial body. This is at this point the British East India Company because they knew that they needed. Because this is still when they had their whole um, sort of non-interference policy that they needed to reinstall a king, uh, but they feared uh, if they reinstalled Tipu Sultan's children that eventually they would just eventually rise up uh, against against the British and they would have to go through another series of Anglo-Mysore wars. So instead they install Krishna Raja Woodier III. And this is where the, the story gets um, tied into British historiography as well, because when they install him, and in fact, if you go back and look at the records, there's a lot of hand wringing about who they should install and a lot of discussions of what we could call political theology in which you know, they're saying, well, Tipu Sultan's kids have the, have the right to be the king because Tipu Sultan um, has the right of conquest because he defeated the, the Woodier kings. And then other people saying, well, you know, he actually was a usurper and the Woodier kings are the rightful rulers. Eventually, they decide on the, the what they call the reinstallation or the restoration of the Woodier lineage. And in each case, they always frame this. And so they had a you know, is what you might call early colonial PR department was really good at spin. And so they framed it as the restoration of the ancient Hindu family, uh, which by ancient, it's a little um, unknown exactly when the Woodier lineage started, but probably it's in the 16th century. So it's a very um, young dynasty to be calling the restoration of the ancient Hindu family. But this sets a trajectory for how Krishna Raja Woodier III will articulate his sovereignty as a proper Hindu ruler coming from a proper Hindu lineage. Um, and he's trained by the trained and educated by the British. So whenever there's things being produced out of the court of Mysore during his period, uh, he's producing things that make sense within that British historiography. So the um, Vamshavalis or the lineage texts that are created during this period, um, they're not like those of Tipu Sultan or any of their predecessors, which began with sort of in the mode of the, the Puranas, or at least texts that are trying to be Maha Puranas with the Panchalakshana, because they don't have, you know, the creation of the universe, the cycles with recreation, uh, going through the ages of the Manus or, or any of these things. It just starts with Mahavishnu and gives um, a genealogy that actually reads a lot like if you're familiar with the genealogies of the Hebrew Bible or especially in the in some of the Gospels of the Christian Bible. Uh, and if you go back and trace it, uh, the number of lineages with it, which I do in the book, um, the number of lineages in the lineage text from Krishna Raja Woody or the third 
map onto the um, age of the world within the Christian context of the British to where, you know, it's just a few thousand years old and you can trace all Christian Roger Woodier all the way back to um, Mahavishnu who gave birth to um, Brahma from his, from his navel. So yeah, getting back to, to the point, uh, this is, these are two kings that are really different uh, at first glance, but actually when you look more deeply, they're, they're quite parallel in how they're um, navigating the worlds of, of their identity. You've actually, uh, first of all, endlessly fascinating to have, a, uh, for me anyhow, to have a Puranic account <laughs> uh, of, of a line of kings that parallels um, sort of the Abrahamic timeline <laughs> since creation. It's so good. Um, what, um, so you preempted actually my next question, which was, you know, the, the book is organized um the way it is uh, by these leaders, um, obviously there's lots of different data in each of the chapters, each of the respective chapters, but it seems to be um, drawing parallels more than contrasts between the two men, would you say? Yeah, because, I mean, both of them are heavily interested. When I say both of them, I mean the kings and their court. Uh, because I don't think that um, even though they're both attributed to writing a lot of texts or a lot of texts are attributed to them, um, this is not one person working in isolation. It's clear that there is a vast knowledge of, of history here uh, that seems like you would need a, a team of people um, developing these and being commissioned and, and all of this, um, the work that would go into creating extensive catalogs of visual, literary, material culture. So you would need artisans, poets, uh, painters, uh, dancers and performers. I don't really get into that, to that in the book, but there's also, you know, Yakshaganas being written at this point. Uh, there's songs and hymns. So there's a lot of other things that um, aren't included in the book that could have been. Um, I actually forgot the question. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's always about the scenic route. Um, so uh, it, it's great either way, but I was sort of uh, driving at the extent to which, despite the very different data for each of these kings, there are these parallel themes that are core to your argument. Right. Yeah. So thank you for, for reminding me. <laughs> um, I got it's off my, on my own little tangent. Yeah. So no, they are, to me, so similar. And part of the similarities between these two kings is that um, we, looking back on them, want to force them into all the history that has taken place since they lived. So when we look at this, we look at this through the, you know, through the British historiography. We look at this through partition. We look at this through conflicts between Pakistan and India. But those things didn't exist uh for them, at least in, in my opinion, because I don't think either of them think of their religious identity as the that's something that divides them from other people. So, like Tipu Sultan, of course, he was a Muslim. Um, this is this is not to be debated. I don't think that he ever wasn't a a, a Muslim, um, and it's not my place to judge who's a good and, and bad Muslim. Uh, but he saw himself first and foremost as an Indian king. And so he writes constantly, and these are actually in his his own journals and letters that he writes to people, um, that he puts the protection of Hindustan above anything else. 
and so he'll he'll make treaties with with Muslims, but also with um, with Hindu Rajputs up in Rajasthan. He'll um, patronize gurus uh, up in, in Sringeri, the Jagat Guru of Sringeri. Uh, he will ally himself with uh, the French and even create uh, a Jacobin club in uh, in Mysore. So he does a lot of things that if you're trying to think about like Muslim identity from today's perspective, you might think that this would go against tenets. But for him, that wasn't his number one priority. His number one priority was to to be a good ruler. So I think this is important for Tipu Sultan. He goes about it in in one particular way, but so does Krishna Raja Woodier. He leans more heavily into the identity of of being a Hindu, so uh, because that's sort of what was the time period he was living in. Uh, but he also thinks more broadly about you know he is a an Indian king and he's uh, wanting to restore what Indian kingship should be, which is a free, independent, uh, sovereign, not just of Mysore, but he looks around to all of India. And um, the, the seventh chapter that I have actually looks at uh, how he constructs sort of a model for independent India by sending a, a one of his subordinates, a, a local priest, uh, around to different uh, kingdoms throughout India, taking, um, you know, icons insignia from them but also visiting the the temples that are important nearby uh and thinking of hindu identity as something that's not isolated to to one kingdom as might have been you know in pre-modernity uh, but now all indian kings are actually working together for indian sovereignty against the british so in those ways these two kings like even though they're in, in some ways very different they're actually doing the same exact thing the same exact thing in terms of um, uh, crafting kingship, in terms of establishing the identification of the sovereign. Yeah, exactly. Trying to think about you know what what the role of an Indian king is, because both of them are, are primarily interested in the idea of the kingship of India, whether they call it you know uh, Bharata or, or Hindustan, uh, but that is the sort of locus of their focus uh, with both of them framing Mysore kingship as the epitome, the pinnacle, the apex of what it means to be an Indian king. So again, doing these same things that we see in inscriptions in medieval India to where, you know, something like Daud Ali, um, Indian, all these people have talked about to where you you do rituals, you recreate your world as the center of the, of the universe and draw upon uh, Puranic tropes and uh, medieval rituals to sort of display that and articulate it. It seems to me the work of modern day PR departments and uh, establishing profiles, for example, online. Um, this work is 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 um, it's ancient. This is the work. Uh, as important as it is for an individual to establish an identity and project a persona into the world, how much more important is it? for someone um, whose identity and persona the entire population depends upon. So it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I think there are a lot of um, fascinating broad questions that your research touches on. Um, why is your book called Devotional Sovereignty? Yeah, great question. Uh, so it's because what I found in both cases, and I guess this gets 
the previous question that you asked is so what exactly are they doing the same? Both of them at some position uh, time in their in their kingship for Tipu Sultan it really begins in 1792 for Krishna Raja Wadir in 1831. Uh, they're in a position to where it seems like they recognize that they're, they have lost something with their sovereignty. With Tipu Sultan, uh, he had lost uh, the Third Anglo-Mysore War to the, to the British, uh, and the British had taken his sons as ransom for the war debts. Um, and at this point, I think that sort of hit home that uh, maybe he's not the strongest military leader, uh, or maybe that's not where he could cast his identity. Uh, so at this point, he, he shifts. And this is where a lot of the material has focused on him, where he labels his, his government the God-given government. He institutes a lot of um, Islamic reforms. As people said, like, oh, this is where he turns into a, into a zealot because he lost this. And that's looking, if you just look at certain materials, yes, I can see where people could, could misread the situation. But he continues doing things like patronizing Hindu temples. Uh, he has a, um, a long letter writing uh, campaign or friendship with the Jagadguru Sringeri. Um, he engages with Hindu Rajputs, he engages with the French. So while part of the, the public creation of persona was for this Islamic reforms, uh, a lot of this is also to get the attention of the the Mughals, eventually the, when that doesn't work, the Afghani king um, and then the Ottoman Empire. So there's also a strategy behind how he would rebrand his, his kingdom during this period. In 1831, Krishna Raja Woody III uh, loses administrative and financial control of the of the capital for what the British had called mismanagement of the resources. So these two moments become um, influential for how the the kings start to to create new articulations of their sovereignty. And both of them, what they do, getting to your question, is that they both turn heavily to devotion as how they're going to frame their their kingship. For Tipu Sultan, it's about devotion to the Sringeri Guru, um, his devotion to um, Gisu Daraz, who had been an important Sufi saint uh, in the Deccan Plateau during the period of the Bahmanis, and framing them as his personal gurus uh, from whom he derives his um, royal authority, that he is truly the, the elected of God, and proof comes through the authority that's passed on to them him through these two important figures. Uh, so just to, to touch on that a little bit, um, Gisu Daraz had been an imperial um, peer or, or Sufi saint for the Bahmanis, and then the Adil Shahs continue patronage to his dargah. So it's a way that Tipu Sultan is able to connect his own personal devotion back to the devotion of these larger kingdoms and empires before him. So he's building a genealogy of devotion uh, at this point, as well as his previous genealogies of his own biology. Uh, Krishna Raja Woodyer III also does this, um, and in fact, there's been uh, previous studies like John Ike Nair's uh, Mysore Modern, which is a, a brilliant book and one that really opened my eyes to a lot of, that goes on in, in Mysore, and a lot of my current interests are driven from reading that. Um, but it seems uh, in that book and in other studies that at this moment of 1831 is when he um, his patronage becomes lesser. Um, or he just turns to religion because he doesn't have anything else to to occupy his time. And what I actually found by 
actually made a spreadsheet of all of his donations, they actually skyrocket after 1831, just now from his personal resources. So he's no longer giving land grants because he doesn't have the authority to do that, but he's giving cash grants, uh, giving um, jewelry, giving uh, stones and uh, precious metals. Um, all these start actually much more frequently after 1831. Also, after this period, he begins a production of images of himself and devotion. So following a long uh, tradition in South India of um, bhakti vigrahas, as they call them in Canada, or these um, portraits of kings who are patrons in temples, he starts installing images of himself in temples and also those of his predecessors within temples. Yeah, he takes it one step further even and starts having lithographs made of himself worshiping different deities. And then these are then sent throughout the kingdom to different important families. And now when you go look at um, almost any museum that has collections from Mysore, uh, one or two of these are painted lithographs of, of the king performing some sort of devotional ritual, some sort of, of puja. So what we find is in both cases, uh, as the king lost certain modes of, of sovereignty, when they lost power over military or they lost administrative and financial control, uh, where they turned was they turned to uh, devotional practices. Um, so they were starting to articulate their sovereignty as uh, a new sort of sovereignty, at least what I see as emphasizing a new aspect of sovereignty, and that was their devotional sovereignty, their sovereignty over the, the devotional realm, uh, be it through their patronage or their own personal devotion to um, Sufi saints, gurus, um, or deities in different temples. Would you say both of these um, rulers were participating in in what we might think of as the Indian um, uh, idiom of bhakti? Definitely. Um, I mean, with Tipu Sultan, he's doing, um, of course, some different things uh, that, you know, I'd let other people who are more well-versed um, with bhakti to to. Um, Sufi saints or peers and discuss whether or not we can, Bhakti is an appropriate term for that. But as far as his relationship with um, the, the Jagad Guru, uh, definitely uh, Bhakti is even a word that comes up in the letters that are, are within the Sringeri uh, archive. And then when you get to Krishna Raja Woodier III, I mean, the term Bhakti Vigraha, the first time I ever saw it was actually in um, the large um, genealog genealogical text that actually is attributed to him, uh, he talks about the installation of these images and calls them um, bhakti vigrahas or sculptures uh, of bhakti or sculptures that, that display bhakti. So very much for Krishna Raja Woodier, he sees himself as the um, perhaps the paradigm of Indian devotion, and where these images are installed are also, I think, helpful to seeing exactly how he viewed this. So in, in the temples that he installs images of himself, they are usually uh, at the beginning or at the end of another series of, of images, whether it's one in a, a Vaishnava context in which he's there along with the, the famous Sri Vaishnava Allwaters, or if he's in, the, um, in a Shaiva context with the, the Nayanars. So he sees some, and which are both um, collections, either Vaishnava or Shaiva, of these very famous and important um, Tamil Bhakti poets. And so he puts himself right alongside of them. And not only is he right alongside them, but he's much larger. Uh, and so typically within Indian art, 
if something is larger, it is of more importance. Uh, and so by sort of putting himself in a sequence of all of these things and as either the first or the last and the largest, you're going to see that he's creating a, a visual um, genealogy, a visual articulation of uh, who he is, not just as a king, but who he is as a, as a devotee, that he is an exemplary devotee. He's the best of all the devotees. And oh, yeah, when you look at him, you also definitely recognize that he's a king because he wears a turban, a tunic, he has a sword, his scepter. So there's no denying that he is a king. So for him, he is simultaneously the, the best king and the best devotee. What is your core contention in terms of the crafting of kingship between these two men? In your book, I mean. Yeah, um, as far as my uh, core contention, can you explain what your, I want to make sure I understand the question. Uh, so, what, like, what is it? Um, what is what is the central point you you articulate in the book? What what is it that you're you're driving at in terms of showing the ways in which these men um, um, craft their sovereignty? Right. So the my the primary argument. I mean, I guess I should frame it as the you know the my question and then uh, my answer. So my question was, you know, what does it mean to be king? when you don't have all the things that we associate with with royal power when your uh, sovereignty is is limited um and so the, the answer for me looking at Tipu Sultan and Krishna Raja Whittier the third when they were stripped of the things that they were associating with kingship the Tipu Sultan military power Krishna Raja Wadir III, administrative and, and fiscal authority uh, when those things were removed uh, they turn toward questions of what you call religion, of metaphysics, of myth, um, all these different things that I would, you know, I would just say they're a turn to um, religious idioms, uh, particularly those in which they're shown as um, devotees. Uh, so they, they recast their sovereignty in light of devotion. So it becomes a, a devotional sovereignty at that moment. And so this is, yeah, this is how they, they both seem to unfold. And I think that this is something that, you know, other people have noticed in other contexts and people that I talk about in the book um, during the intro, like Jan Osman talking about um, the, the covenant of uh, Hebrews, uh, or you get into Puranic studies with, you know, one of the most influential uh, articles that I've ever read was actually by Travis L. Smith, who talks about um Skanda Purana and the Divodasa story and about how it's, uh, when you read the different versions, it's actually an articulation of contemporaneous debate, but by casting it in the, the world of the ancient, the article's called Renewing the Ancient, uh, it actually gives it this sense of longevity. This has always been the, the answer to this. I think both Tipu Sultan and Krishna Raja Woody are, and their courts are masters at doing this, that when they sort of move into this new identity, uh, them and their courts are able to make it seem like this is the way it's always been. I think your your point about Puranas is definitely resonant. Um, the genre of Purana very, very loosely, you know, Indian mythology. Um, Purana means ancient. And I think this, this um, part of the problem of um, Indological scholarship looking to the Puranas for an ancient past uh, I think the the core of that the issue there is that the Puranas are 
telling you that they're ancient because the contents in them are not. And I think mm -hmm. it's always been the case of an avenue to uh, legitimize through ancient lore um, what you're trying to establish in, a, in the present epoch. And I think that's sort of part of the, the, the core purpose of the Puranas. Um, so in terms of your core argument, uh, it sounds like uh, these, would you say that these kings were perhaps looking to, uh, um, they were supplanting their, their shaky secular authority with spiritual authority or religious authority? Yeah, I think that it's, um, you know, something that, again, I don't want to go as far as saying that um, it was something that was extremely contrived, but I think it uh, might just be sort of the natural place that they went to. I mean, I could think about when I teach my uh, undergrads and I talk about like, you know, the, the life story of the, of the Buddha or things like this. I always talk about, you know, like it's those moments to where we have uh, suffering or turmoil is when a lot of people wind up turning to, uh, to religion. And I think that this might be, you know, a similar situation. And this is largely speculation, but you know, they're, when they're faced with turmoil, they turn to something that they, they see as um, stable and powerful uh, and something that can help correct us. So I think that it's just sort of a natural movement to whenever, you know, things don't go as planned within the earthly realm that people might turn to, or in the physical realm, people might turn to like metaphysics to, to help them uh, with their response. And so I think that it's sort of a, a natural movement that takes place, but one that then becomes sort of masterfully done uh, to to shape this new identity in a way that, it, again, I think is an organic one uh, and one that has a lasting effect within India. Yeah, it seems to me that um, irrespective of the extent to which these men may have been pious or devout or looking for, for grace, quote unquote, um, uh, for their purposes, certainly, um, certainly there is the the, the representation, uh, the, the the crafting, the presentation um, of uh, sort of the the inextricability between their rule, uh, sovereignty itself, and uh, and sort of otherworldly forces. Like it seems to me that that it's a crucial. A crucial move is this sort of marketing trope, uh, perhaps even more so than just um, turning to the divine for their own personal right. uh, aid. Mm -hmm. um, so you were thrown for a loop by <laughs> you had the good fortune of 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 of, of gaining the audience of a of a raja, and unlike currently, not a raja in name alone, an actual raja, <laughs> <laughs> and. He threw you for a loop, uh, and he went down this rabbit hole. And you, um, he he attuned you to probably a much more fascinating question, um, and you pursued it. And it seems, in my estimation, at least, you pursued it quite well. Um, you produced something fascinating. What what um, what surprised you about this research? What was most surprising to you? Um, what most surprised me probably was um, how little work had been done on Mysore within the past, I don't know, we could say 20 years, uh, and probably even extend that a little bit farther because, you know, most people within Indological Studies either know of Mysore or have been to Mysore, 
uh, because the um, Archaeological Survey of India Epigraphic Office, Epigraphy Office is in Mysore, so a lot of people come through there. Um, and a lot of people have sort of an idea of the, the general history of Mysore, at least as, you know, these tropes of the model uh, princely state. They were one of the, the few kingdoms, I think it was three, that had a 21-gun salute. So they were extremely important. Um, it has, they have all these huge palaces. Uh, the goddess Chamundeshwari is there. So, so many people know of it and know about it, but so few people had studied it. Um, of course, the, the big exception being John Ike Nair's Mysore Modern, uh, uh, absolutely brilliant book. Um, but even with her work, took different sources. And so a lot of the, the royal sources of, of Mysore um, prior to 1868 um, are just very understudied. So most of them are you know, still only in uh, epigraphy collections or in, um, I, I should say this is English studies because there's a lot of them in Canada uh, and a lot of the texts that um, were written during the medieval early modern or early colonial period you know have actually been you know published as uh, critical editions especially from the university of mysore so people in karnataka wor are working on it in canada but as far as english studies uh, very few so i i was struck by this and um yeah just was kind of felt entirely fortunate the whole time that i had stumbled upon something that people uh, seemed to be interested in and um, wanted to know a little bit more about, and somehow um, no one had done it. <laughs> so I found that very, very interesting. Uh, absolutely. Do you plan on um, pursuing this data for subsequent work? Um, hopefully, hopefully. I, I've you know published different different things about it because you know I do find it so uh, engaging to this point. So. You know, done a little bit of work on the um, the late Maharaja of Mysore, thinking about some of these paintings also from the period of the book, thinking about them differently as cartography. Um, so working sort of all around it, but eventually I would like to return to uh, more of the work in my dissertation that looks at the previous kings, those before uh, the Mysore Sultanate, before Tipu Sultan, uh, which I think um, might be helpful uh, for some people who who read this book to think about um, all the continuities that I gesture toward, but actually seeing some of the uh, a more thorough analysis and discussion of some of these uh, tropes that are existing prior to Tipu Sultan within the within the Mysore court. And then, of course, right now I'm I'm finishing up my my second book, which is um, actually taking the opposite approach to some of the the same issues. So, looking at a folk song. Um, that talks about the history of Mysore and its creation, but from a, a folk position, which largely leaves out the the kings. They they make some uh, cameos, but uh, largely leaves it out. So hopefully that also will show that you know people thinking about histories and curating the past are not just royal courts, but also um, sort of maybe not everyday people, but uh, people coming from a different perspective that uh, is a less privileged perspective than the royal court. So um, in in so we're sort of looking into a world that is removed from us uh, geographically, culturally, historically, and you have sort of the royal people from this book. 
um, that'll give you a glimpse into certain aspects of the royal court. And if I'm understanding you correctly, in the book you're working on now, um, we're again looking into the same time, space, cultural world, but from a different people, which doesn't, um, which doesn't show us the same uh, vantage point or even the same objects as in the current book. Is that correct? Yeah, they're they're so different because I mean, both people of Todd and Christian Roger Woodier, um, especially in the first chapter on each, I'm really uh, looking at the histories they're telling of themselves, and these are histories I'm, I'm translating from um, um, or um, lineage texts, and so how they construct the the history of Mysore mainly based on kings, but also going back to um, you know, mythological time or religiously important times, like the for Tipo Sultan, it's more about the prophet Muhammad. Uh, for Christian Roger Woodier III, it's about the creation of the world by um, Vishnu. And so the stuff that I'm working on now, they're interested in the same thing. So it's the history of Mysore, uh, but instead of grounding it in, you know, this is when X king came and established the kingdom, this was the beginning of Mysore. Uh, these texts actually ground it in the mythological battle between uh, the goddess Chamundeshwari and the um, buffalo king uh, Mahishasana. So the the famous story of, of Durga killing the the buffalo demon, and that becomes the story of the establishment of of Mysore. Uh, the kings, of course, are, are brought into this uh, very briefly, but it's actually all about uh, Mysore as a place where the goddess came for her, her everyday devotees. That uh, this is this is for everyone. Uh, so that's why Mysore is important. So in terms of the goddess and the king, this book focuses on the king and the next one on the goddess, it seems. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so I just separated the two out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, not to be mistaken with from my book, The Goddess and the King, which right. talks only about the text, the textual <laughs> world uh, and the interplay between the two. Um, this has been... Um, uh, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm a little bit biased in terms of your your specific uh, subject area, but it's been uh, quite fascinating talking about this book. Is there, um, were there any other aspects of the book or themes or data or anecdotes that, 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 that come to mind that you'd like to share uh, before we wrap up? Well, I would like to give um, one little plug to a, a different archive that I actually haven't discussed much, uh, and that's the visual material from uh, both Mysore courts from Tipu Sultan and Christian Raja Whittier III. Um, I was very fortunate that uh, my publisher, um, Oxford University Press, allowed me to have, uh, I think it's 54 total images in the in the book. So there's a lot of reproductions of, of art produced in, in the Mysore court that I think most of them, have been, this is the first time they're being published, uh, I think it helps us to understand that these articulations are not just a textual thing, but you know there is a material side to this with the creation of, of sculpture. There's a visual side with the creation of paintings and murals. And if you view any of these in isolation, at least at this period, you get a one portion of what's going on, but really you have to view them in their totality to be able to understand really what the the, the what the art what the court's trying to say. Uh, all these fit into one big you know jigsaw puzzle that shows the full portrait of of the king. 
you know, one example of this is with Tifl Sultan, something that I talk about in the, the third chapter. When people go to his summer palace in Sri Rangpatna, uh, there are these beautiful murals all, all through it, especially around the, around the outside. And everyone focuses on the images of war and the war processions. And, and rightly so, they're st absolutely stunning. Uh, they give us military history because we can see formations in it. Um, you can see sort of the um, courtly culture uh, through the processions of the different kings. Uh, so this is very interesting. And so most, most people sort of end their discussion of the murals at that point. But as you walk around to the other side, what you actually find is a very different portrayal of what kingship meant for people Sultan, in which you find these sort of miniature palaces all with portraits of his allies um, all throughout them. And so the one side we saw sort of war, battle, destruction, the pomp of, of the royal military procession. And then on these sides, you actually get a very peaceful, domesticated vision. Uh, so this, for me, can, became kind of like a, a, a symbol of what I'm trying to do is that you have to see both parts so that for Tipu Sultan, it wasn't just about military conquest, but also, um, that goes hand in hand with actually having peace and having allies and having uh, prosperity within the kingdom. And of course, through this, you also have a bunch of different mosques displayed or people at the mosque praying or reading the Quran. So, uh, of course, within that all, religion is the thread that helps tie all these together. And then when you step back from that and you try to think of it, you know, in its totality or the comprehensive statement, no longer is it just something about war, but really it's about um, being a king, that you have to go to war and you, and you want to win. Uh, but then the, what happens as a result is that you can have peace. Uh, so I think that uh, you know, this happens in both courts, that you have, you have these very multifaceted articulations of what sovereignty is, and you have to put them all in conversation with one another to really get the full picture. I'm glad you made mention of uh, the visual representations because they enrich not only um, the reader's um, experience of of the research, uh, but they certainly enrich um, your argument. And you're fortunate in that you know you found a peephole into this world um, that 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 includes the purview of um, all of this material culture. Um, it's fascinating and um, stimulating, to say the least. Um, for those of you listening, uh, we've been speaking today with Dr. Caleb Simmons from the University of Arizona on his 2020 OUP publication, Devotional Sovereignty. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Raj. Um, my pleasure, as always. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, stay safe, keep reading, keep thinking and um, keep listening. Take care.